Hey guys, welcome to episode number 32 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. In today's episode, we're going to be joined by Ryan Horn, who is Director of Athletic Performance for Wake Forest University Basketball in the Division One NCAA in the USA. As you'll hear in this episode of the podcast, Ryan's team competes in perhaps the most competitive of the NCAA leagues. He's playing some of the biggest universities out there, University of Kentucky, Duke, and so on. So he's working at an extremely high level of collegiate sport, and he has a strength and conditioning program to match. And it's for exactly that reason that I wanted to talk to him on the podcast today. And if you're paying attention to the recent Science for Sport article, which came out listing the top 100 practitioners within strength and conditioning and sports science, you'll be pleased to know that Ryan is on that list. Over the course of this hour, we get right into the detail of how his program has evolved over the 10 plus years that Ryan has been a strength and conditioning coach. In particular, the philosophical discussion about should training mimic the game or should a strength and conditioning coach be targeting adaptations which the sport doesn't stimulate itself. We also talk about his use of various different technologies, uh, including those that he uses for load monitoring like accelerometry and heart rate monitoring, in addition to new tools like the K-Box, which he's using for overspeed eccentrics to strengthen that particular contraction type during a sporting triphasic movement, and his top recommendations for things like podcasts, books, and other learning resources. Now on the topic of learning resources, if you've enjoyed this podcast, make sure you check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive online members area we have over 200 members from all over the world at all different levels of sport all the way from uh, students and interns up to the elite level uh, division one colleges international sport nfl nba and so on you can ask questions and get advice from elite level coaches who have been there done it brought the t-shirt and hopefully save yourself a lot of time money and frustration in the process of trying to build your career within elite level strength and conditioning if you would like to try that website for just 24 hours for one pound go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and the reason we've created this community is to expose coaches to the kind of learning materials that are going to help them to become more effective in their jobs this is the topics that matter in the real world and each month we have a strength and conditioning coach from elite level sport present on a topic which is dear to their hearts this is the stuff that really matters and makes a difference for them in the real world it's not just something that the UKSCA or a degree program or the NSCA says you have to learn to become a strength and conditioning coach not only that we have an online discussion area where people can ask questions discuss topics and share resources on all different topics within strength and conditioning and finally for developing coaches we have a career advice section and when you get to the checkout enter the coupon code trial t-r-i-a-l that will allow you to sample the website for 24 hours at a cost of one pound if you like it you can keep it and retain that monthly membership if not no problem no strings attached just get in contact and you can cancel that immediately but for now without further ado enjoy this episode of the podcast with ryan horn of wake forest university and i'll talk to you soon ryan how are you doing well uh spending the friday night with you family's out of town so it's not almost nine o'clock my time uh in the state so usually this is my wife and i's date night so i guess uh you're gonna have to sub in for me that's, wow, that's an for me. <laughs> so, um, who are you and what do you do? Tell the people. Well, uh, right now I'm currently the Director of Athletic Performance for Men's Basketball at Wake Forest University, um, which is Division One collegiate basketball team here in the States. Uh, we currently play in the ACC, which in my opinion is the best basketball conference uh, in the country. Uh, by far. Um, so that presents a very unique set of challenges, but also 
um, the reward of knowing that you get to play some of the best and go to some of the best arenas and play some of the best players in the country. So being in that environment, uh, I think for us, you know, breeds a lot of intensity um, day to day to really motivate our athletes to get where we want to be. So we're going on our third season now. Um, we just finished our almost finished uh, our third summer block of training, which is really our off season window. Um, before we got here, Coach Manning and the rest of the staff and myself, we were at the University of Tulsa um, in Oklahoma. Uh, we were there for three years. Um, before I received the position there, I was actually at Virginia Commonwealth University uh, in Richmond, Virginia. And then before that, uh, I was at Robert Morris University um, doing my initial internship. So Along the lines there, I've been blessed. Uh, I haven't been fired yet, um, so that's that's good. Um, so I've, I've been able to uh, be somewhat stable uh, in my coaching development and as far as how I've went from university to university. I felt like I've fortunately been able to do it on my own terms and, and really stay in places and continue to develop myself as a coach under mentors such as Tim Contos at VCU, Todd Hammer, Robert Morris, uh, Rourke Cutchlow and Adam Davis at the University of Tulsa and so on and so forth. I've really been blessed to be able to work uh, for some head coaches that allowed me uh, to really experiment, uh, to make mistakes, but also give me the freedom and the autonomy uh, to kind of do my thing and, and learn on the fly, so to speak, um, getting this profession. I played college football. I played high school football. Um, I didn't have any experience when I got my first job. My resume was horrendous. Um, you know, and that was due to some life, life issues that happened as far as getting married, having a child, finishing my degree, things and, and things of, of that nature. So, uh, you know, luckily, um, I had a couple of guys like Todd Hammer and Tim Contos that took a chance on me and that's kind of where my career started. Um, you know, I've been blessed to work with a lot of different sports. Um, I haven't always just been a football or basketball guy. So I've worked the gamut of soccer and golf and volleyball and baseball and softball and basketball and football and crew hockey I mean all the way down the line so I think that that broad spectrum of experiences working with a ton of different athletes a ton of different personalities cultures um, so on and so forth I've been very thankful um, to kind of really take an unorthodox path so to speak uh, but I think that's really helped kind of bring me to where I'm at today and is really you know, shape me as a coach. Um, so that's kind of my path. I don't want to be too long winded, uh, with that, but, uh, yeah, that's where I started and that's how I got here. Was that shift to basketball quite organic or was it a conscious decision on your part? Uh, early on, uh, I just wanted to be a strength conditioning coach. Uh, that was it. I never really had any intention to, to be a football guy or be a basketball guy. Um, I kind of just needed an opportunity um, and whatever sport that was, that's what it was. So like, for instance, when I first got my first graduate assistant position at Virginia Commonwealth University when I was getting my master's degree, you know, I was working track and field, um, field hockey, uh, field hockey. And then I was helping out with uh, the rest of the sports there on campus. So in that experience, I've, I've never seen field hockey in my life. I didn't even know what it was. Uh, so I had to learn fast, same thing with track and field, but, you know, track and field, for instance, opened me up to, you know, coaches like Charlie Francis and Dan Path. And I had a lot of connections there. So that continued to mold me. Then working with field hockey and dealing with the team sport, um, from a bioenergetic standpoint and from a structural standpoint, that's very demanding. 
that also opened up my eyes to a lot of different training methodologies and the way I viewed the training process in general. And then probably the most pivotal moment in my career actually was when I started working with soccer, uh, men's and women's soccer. And that's when I realized that the majority of my education was based solely in the weight room on increasing strength and, and power and all the fun stuff that we like to do in the weight room. Uh, but I had a huge gap um, in energy systems development and especially with soccer players and managing training load and utilizing small pieces of technology. And I think my first uh, piece of technology I had to use, they did heart rate monitor training when he was at the University of Akron. Uh, and uh, he asked us if we wanted to do that. We did not have the budget, so I went to my local sporting's good, sporting goods store and uh, bought one watch and one monitor and, and would rotate with that with guys in their training. And at that time, I was reading Joel Jameson and Valden Setkin and Landon Evans, who's a great friend of mine, and Mark McLaughlin and James Smith and Buddy Morris and, and all these guys was putting, you know, they were putting out this fantastic information and it really challenged me as a coach um, to really look into it and, and ask the right questions, not necessarily looking for answers all the time, uh, but really looking at what questions to ask, you know, how can I make myself better than in turn uh, better develop my athletes. So when I was at VCU, I got to help out with the men's and women's basketball program. They didn't have football there, so I, that, that was kind of the marquee or primary sports uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University, um, and I fell in love with it. Uh, I fell in love with the, the small numbers, uh, the lack of logistical concerns. Uh, I feel like we really had you know, phenomenal, you know, student athlete coach relationships. Uh, you could be very dynamic and fluid in your programming, but you could also be very athlete centric uh, with how you program. So I, I really felt like it fit my personality. It really fit my skill set. So something I knew I wanted to do from that point. Uh, when I went to Tulsa, I continued to work with basketball, but I also worked football. Um, and then that kind of sealed the deal for me. And then, you know, once you're a basketball guy in America, you're always a basketball guy. So I think I've been, you know, been a, been a, yeah, you know, that, that's kind of the thing. You know, you got football guys, you got basketball guys, and you kind of get uh, labeled uh, with the sport that you work with, um, which, you know, whatever. I'm a coach first. So whatever sport I work with, that's fine. So that, that's kind of how it, uh, kind of organically kind of developed because I originally didn't have any intention of I really didn't care what teams I worked with to be honest with you and then so now at this point you know I think it's led me this way to the spot I'm at now and I'm, I'm very thankful for that because I really love what I do and I love the guys that I work with you know I can't hit a jump shot to save my life but uh, you know fortunately uh, you don't need to be able to do that to uh, to prepare these guys you got to understand the game but you know I don't necessarily have to be able to do it so that's a plus yeah now, I haven't got this question written down, but this is just kind of curiosity for myself. You said you're an athletic performance director. Is, yeah. Are you making a distinction there between strength coach or physical preparation coach and athletic performance? Is it more that in your role you're working on the program just as much as you're working in the program? Or uh, you know, in, in the United States, there's a uh, you know there's there's really a, uh, a branding war, so to speak, going on with titles and, you know, people labeling, you know, departments at high, as high performance models and things of that nature. And there's a lot of that, um, you know, director of athletic performance. That's just what we called our department when I was at the university of Tulsa, uh, with Adam Davis. And, and that, and, you know, and that was, you know, what we kind of wanted to make sure that people understood, um, that our approach is 
holistic and we have a greater impact on a lot of different modalities and, and tools and training methodologies and just what happens in the four walls of the weight room uh, and what we're involved in. So in my current position, you know, whether it's, you know, plan and practice day to day in staff meetings, you know, obviously the sports science piece uh, is a big part of what we do, um, the training, the coaching, nutrition, I mean, we, we wear a lot of hats. Uh, and I think that kind of title is something that, you know, you can call me a strength conditioning coach. You can call me a, you know, high perform, whatever you want to call me. I doesn't really, uh, as long as it's coach, you know, I'm okay with that. Um, but that's, that, but there's really to us, it's just, uh, when you get a recruiting trip or a recruiting visit and a kid comes in and, and the parents come in, you know, they call you a weight coach, uh, or this is your lifting coach. And, uh, so there's a lot of different names and a lot of, uh, I think a lack of understanding uh, of what it is we really do on a, on a daily basis. So I think it's important, uh, as coaches that we educate those parents and educate those student athletes of really what our role is in the athlete development process. Um, so they can brace and appreciate that as well yeah you know i think like you said it's got to the point where the, the name strength and conditioning coach just conjures images of back squats power cleans and suicides and that's, that's pretty much it right yeah and i think so i mean i, I mean, like i said before you know i still call myself the strength conditioning coach i mean depending on who i'm talking to but that's just kind of like my official title um but you know i i think it's important i know i've had people you know, list us as, you know, call, call us like a sports scientist. I'm not a sports scientist at all. Uh, you know, I'm a coach that uses uh, technology to help drive some of our decision making uh, and provide some more clarity and increase our scope of, of practice as far as what we do to help us ask some better questions and have the tools needed to get the answers that we need to get. Um, but yeah, I think there's just too much focus on what you want to call yourself. I mean, that doesn't, in, in the, in the end, uh, unless it's a title change to get you a, a, a raise or a new position. Uh, I think it's something that's just kind of, you know, time could be spent in other places. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So what are some of those questions that you're trying to ask and, and get the answers to help the program? You know, I, I think when we look back, uh, you know, I, I, I've talked about this before uh, in some other interviews and podcasts that I've done. Uh, but when I was at the University of Tulsa, uh, it was the first day that Coach Manning actually accepted the job. Uh, and then first and foremost, I got to I got to mention right now that everything that we do, um, the vision that we have for our program and for our student athletes, it really all comes from the top. Uh, we can't really do what we do and have the support that we have uh, and the voice that we have um, without Coach Manning's support. Um, so I'm very appreciative of, of, you know, his, you know, unrelentless, you know, a relentless and unconditional uh, kind of support of our program and giving us the tools and the resources that we need to be successful. But in the same token, if he doesn't want to listen to the information, uh, I think we're just wasting our time. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's important that you have a culture in place with your staff and you have a head coach um, that's open to receiving that information, um, that's open to using that information to drive his decision making um, and help him you know, improve him, himself as a coach as well. Um, but as far as decision makings are concerned, back to that story, um, Coach Manning's first day on the job, he gets it. Um, we have an athlete that's playing pickup. Uh, and that athlete actually uh, was basically standing on the sideline and collapsed. Uh, and when he collapsed, he went into cardiac arrest. Um, the athletic trainer 
had to resuscitate him on court. Luckily, the athletic training staff was still there um, and luckily was able to bring him back to life. Uh, you know, and, and then from that moment, you know, Coach Manning kind of came to me and came to the sports medicine staff and, and asked me a very, a very direct but a very impactful uh, question that kind of resonated with me. Uh, you know, he was just basically flat out, you know, what do we have to do um, to make sure that something like this never happens again? And I looked at him and I, you know, I kind of didn't really have the answer right then and there uh, as far as what we needed to do. But I knew it was something that I had to look into. And it was a very, you know, sober and experienced to realize the impact that we have besides, you know, performance metrics and, and, and performance increases. Uh, but to know that we have these athletes, you know, well-being and livelihood uh, in our hands. Uh, on a daily basis with what we're doing with these kids. Um, so at that moment, I mean, that's when we started making a real big push um, uh, from a sports science or from a technology perspective. So we went with, you know, purchased heart rate monitors. We did that the first year. Um, we started using some accelerometry uh, the second year. And then we got to Wake Forest. Um, we started looking at readiness and HRV um, and started utilizing Omega Wave technology, um, continued to use the tracking, uh, and then started to branch out with some VBT, um, velocity-based training methodology, and also utilizing um, some force plate technology as well. Um, so we've added these pieces um, along the way, and we made sure that the information and the things that we were measuring mattered. Um, and there were things that were going to help us improve our programming, but help us also uh, develop our student athletes and be able to kind of prepare them so they could perform. And then later on, you know, we're able to protect them because we have the base that we need. Um, so from a decision making process, you know, we're using the catapult tracking data um, from a daily, uh, you know, practice piece. We're using that to help modify our practice plans um, to control duration of practice, volume of practice, and then, of course, intensity. Uh, we're also using that information to establish a baseline uh, in the you know in the case that we have a return to play uh, situation from an injury. We have those baseline numbers and we know what our athletes need to be able to do to perform. Um, so we're trying to bridge that gap between return to play and then return to performance. Uh, and it's hard to do that if you can't if you can't quantify those benchmarks. Um, along the way, I think the ability to do that um, has really helped with our rehab process and our return to play process because we, because we know, excuse me, we know where our athletes, you know, were before the injury, um, and then we can help get them there uh, in a logical uh, manner um, that's conducive um, to minimizing the risk of uh, re-injury um, to whatever the affected. Uh, body part is. Um, so from that piece, it's been huge for our guys to be able to see that. But it's also been big for our coaching staff to be able to quantify uh, something that's never in basketball. Uh, it, it's something historically that hasn't been done. Uh, so have the ability to quantify their practices, to have a, a, a good projected number before practice as far as, you know, what type of load and volume are these guys going to be under. Uh, Going into each day has been huge for our coaching staff. They've told me that firsthand, uh, and they really believe in what we do. But it's been three years to get that type of information. Uh, the, you know, the first year of tracking, we're just figuring things out. We're learning how to charge them. We're learning how to put them in the bros and, and get them on the guys. And we're just collecting information and collecting data because we didn't really know what we were looking at. 
Uh, and it took some time to establish some thresholds and some baselines to kind of say, okay, you know, now we're starting to get a feel for it. We're starting to get comfortable. Um, you know, let's start digging a little bit deeper. So after that first season, we looked retrospectively uh, at all the data that we had from the season and, and drew some conclusions from it. And then we moved on to our second year. Um, I think we had a little bit more confidence in the things that we were seeing and the things that we were laying to our coaching staff. Uh, we were able to provide some more actionable insight and some actionable intelligence uh, to our coaching staff. Um, and I feel like last year went extremely well from a player availability uh, and an injury perspective. Uh, then this year now, you know, we have almost, you know, three years of really, really solid data uh, on our guys. So I think we're in a good position moving forward uh, to continue to uh, add, you know, layers to what we do and, and continue to have those open conversations and, and uh, more effective dialogue. Um, so it's been phenomenal, not only for our coaching staff, but also for our sports medicine staff. And then our players are motivated, motivated by it as well. Um, so it's been huge uh, and, and something that we, we value. It's one of the main things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis that we make sure um, gets done. And then, and then, you know, and then besides that with the force place, the force plate um, and the VBT, um, those are things on a day-to-day -day basis to help us manage our, our athletes to make sure that, you know, what we're doing and the results that we want to see are, is actually what's happening. Uh, it's not in, you know, in the land of subjective and, and we're saying things are getting done, uh, but it allows us to have some more uh, clarity and a little bit more efficiency with how we program for our student athletes to really figure out uh, what type of work do they need to be doing. So not only from a testing protocol and establishing these athlete profiles for these athletes, but also having the tools to be able to quantify and objectively look at uh, some of these metrics. And we can get into more of that later. Um, but the more information that I have, the more things that I can see and the more things I feel like our athletes and our coaching staff can see, I feel like it gets changed. Um, you know, someone told me a while ago that what gets seen gets changed, and I truly believe that. Uh, I think it's something that our athletes need to see, that our coaches need to see, uh, and I think it's been huge for our program. Yeah, and I think you've kind of like alluded to it in your answer. The, the really, really difficult part, definitely from rugby, is is the on field stuff. Being able to quantify that and know that you've you've done better or you're progressing the program in a sensible manner, say compared to the the weight room. Mm -hmm. What are the, the key things that you look at for, you know, on, on field work on court? Are you looking at, is it more heart rate or, or total volume, Axel, D-cell or even, you know, training impulse? Uh, I think with our guys, um, when you look at the indoor sport and you, you're, you're relying, you know, on accelerometry, uh, there's no GPS. We do utilize SportView. Um, which is a camera tracking system uh, that we use for more higher level basketball analytics. We have that for scrimmage situations and we have that in our arena uh, for competition for games. Um, but overall, you know, from that piece indoors, uh, you know, our main metrics that we're looking at, uh, number one is player load. Um, or body load, whatever you want to call it, but Catapult calls it player load. It gives us an idea of the overall volume of the session. Um, and it gives us an idea of what type of movement is being done in the sense of just from a gross number. Uh, so if an athlete has a, you know, a player load of 450, um, let's say we need to be able to have an idea of not only to know that that player load is 450, but also what type of drills uh, was that player load made up of. Um, then we also have to look at our player load per minute, which is our intensity metric. Um, but with the intensity metric and the player load per minute or work rate, 
Um, it's very similar uh, from guy to guy as far as in our experience is concerned on the basketball court, just based on how long they're on the court. Uh, and most guys in practice are practicing the same amount of time uh, unless they're injured or they're being modified uh, reps because of an injury or because of games coming up, so on and so forth. Um, so for that one, we're kind of looking at that number to really see if our practice is kind of fall in the line with what our game data is. So for instance, if our average player load per minute in the game is, you know, 9.5 to 10 and we're consistently practicing at 3.5 to 4.5, uh, at longer durations, then we know our intensity isn't where it needs to be. Um, so I think some of the things that we can show coach and one of the biggest things uh, that we can control uh, is the duration of practice. Um, I actually saw Michael Curtis speak last weekend, uh, who's the director of athletic performance for men's basketball at the University of Virginia, um, and he shared that sentiment uh, with basketball coaches, um, and they're notorious for running extremely long practices. Uh, you know, you only play 20 to 30 minutes in a game, uh, but your practices are, you know, two and a half to three hours. Um, so that can be rough when you're playing anywhere between two to three games a week uh, with minimal recovery. Um, so the biggest thing that we kind of try to control um, is that is that practice duration. I think that um, with the data we're able to show coach, we're able to give him a heads up on the front end. Uh, we do some things from a projected standpoint to look at all the drills that we have in our database and we've categorized them and we have, you know, average loads for each drill so before practice we give coach a projected plan uh, to see what his numbers look like and that's without any deviation uh, so that allows him to adjust drills or adjust time you know based on what our average load uh, the you know the, the last 14 to 22 days have been what our load has been that week and then where we're at as far as the you know when our next game is um, so he's able to get a head start to kind of trim the fat so to speak um, and to be a little bit more efficient with his practice planning um, which he does a phenomenal job with and uh, then some of the other things that we're looking at and in the past you know using tracking uh, you have this gross number as far as you know one guy's got a player load of 450 another guy's got a player load of 475 um, but how do we really look at you know uh, how much high intensity movement, uh, you know, some directional components and some catapult uh, has been a big, you know, a big help for us is with their IMA. Uh, it allows us to look at low, medium and high IMA, which is really high intensity, uh, XL, D-cell, change of direction uh, type movement. Uh, we're able to get a high IMA number and also a percentage of what type of movement overall is being performed at high intensities. Uh, and that's where we see a lot of difference between the athletes. Uh, I've gotten away from really looking at the team averages, um, so to speak, and really focusing on individuals now uh, that we have a bigger data set to work with. Um, we've been more successful with, you know, really kind of being a little bit more athlete centric uh, with our tracking to really see where each individual guy's at, you know, along in the season so we can make sure he's able to perform on game day. Um, so the high IMA has been huge because now it gives us an idea, you know, over a 17 week, 18 weeks season. And, um, you know, practices are getting shorter, but is our work rate, you know, staying high? Is our intensity staying high? You know, we want to control volume, which for us is the amplifier. And then our intensity is going to be our signal. Like Joel Jamison says, you know, our guys, you know, respond pretty well um, to intensity. Um, but when we crank up the volume, uh, even you can see it in our RPEs, you can see it in our wellness questionnaires. Our guys, if it's a one and a half hour practice and it's up and down intense, they give a low RPE score. 
If it's two and a half hours to three hour practice, I don't care if they did walkthrough. It's going to be a high RPE. Just that, just that psychological um, strain and the monotony of just being on their feet and being on a hardwood surface for for three hours. You know, I don't even like being out there that long. If I had to do an RPE after that, mine would be nine two. Uh, so, uh, so I think those are all things that we're really trying to look at um, and try to really paint a, a clear picture. We're also looking at um, you know internal loading. Our guys do wear heart rate monitors during practice, which is huge with basketball players, just because the size of the athlete. Um, um, and the high incidence of cardiac issues and heart issues with those type of athletes. So we do, you know, you, excuse me, use internal mon- uh, internal load monitoring during practice as well. And for that, we're looking at, you know, uh, heart rate exertion. Uh, we're looking at trim scores, times in certain zones. And we're just trying to figure out from a positional standpoint, from an individual standpoint, uh, what our heart rate recovery looks like. Um, what type of exertion level do our guys have? Um, if it's, is it a situation where we're performing, you know, lower intensity movements, but we see a a steady increase in heart rate response, you know, as a marker of fatigue, Uh, you know, those are all things that we're looking at uh, on a day-to-day basis. So that's also a big piece of what we're looking at. Um, So those two uh, are primarily are some of the things that we're doing. Then we also have a, a, a training stress balance. Uh, we, you know, we're taking RPEs, we're taking wellness questionnaires and we're kind of really not necessarily looking at everything, uh, but we're kind of looking at what stands out, um, what doesn't make sense. Uh, are there things that we're not looking for that automatically just pop up? Um, so it's important uh, that we look at it, that I have multiple coaches. I have a phenomenal staff that I work with and guys that help out our department. Um, and they're able to kind of make sure we have multiple eyes on it. Uh, and so we can have those discussions and kind of see what pops out. But unfortunately, what I found is uh, a lot of those things pop out once the season's over <laughs> and, and you take a step back and you look at, you know, 17, 20 weeks of data, um, things start to pop up. And there's some things that we saw at the end of this year that when we were lost in the moment, uh, we just didn't have enough information, enough data at the time uh, to really make some informed decisions. And there's some things that we missed. There's also some things that we did really well. Um, but there was some pieces from a symmetry standpoint, as far as guys starting to, you know, have signs of wear and tear just because of the travel. We know we went to Hawaii. Um, we know we traveled uh, 48 hours total. We went to Hawaii for a week tournament. We left Hawaii, uh, you know, traveled almost 18 hours, got back, had a two-a-day practice, um, went home that night, left Sunday morning, went to New Jersey, got on a plane, then played again on Monday. So we played you know, roughly five games in the span of 10 days and, and then traveled, you know, almost 48 hours. Um, so, uh, you know, during that situation, you're not seeing those things. But then when you take a step back um, and try to view the big picture, um, that's when those things start to pop up. Um, but fortunately, we saw that. Fortunately, nothing, uh, you know, traumatic or anything like that happened. But that's those are things that are allowing us to make some adjustments going forward. And... You know, that, that kind of schedule and two, three games a week. And you, you mentioned before we got into recording that it's an extremely long season in uh, collegiate basketball. I'm curious as to what your, your approach is to meeting the energy system demands or, or trying to address those in training. Because, you know, I think there are a couple of schools of thought on this. And definitely one of them is, you know, if we're hitting all these high intensities in practice and games and so on, 
it's almost in our interest to concentrate on the stuff that the game doesn't stimulate. Or if we are going to condition directly, it should be in the, the intensity zones, which we don't see in practice. Where do you yeah. stand on that? I would actually agree with you 100%. Uh, I see energy system development in season. Our job is to fill the gaps. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, our guys, they're about 90, over 90% of our year uh, is spent either competing or practicing the game of basketball. Uh, so our guys are playing, like right now, for instance, in our summer period, uh, we've been here since the end of May. Um, during that time, we didn't practice the first block, but our coaches get two hours a week uh, for eight weeks with our athletes, uh, even during our biggest off-season block, which is this summer. Um, so our guys are practicing at least two hours a week. Um, they're playing pickup multiple times a week. Um, unlike when I you know, worked with football, guys aren't putting shoulder pads on and going out and playing pickup football. Uh, you know, you're, you're spending over 60% of your year preparing for the sport. Um, so having a game like basketball, um, where there's a huge incidence of repetitive stress injuries, whether it's stress fractures, uh, foot issues, so on and so forth. Um, you have to be very cognizant of how you complement and balance the on the court activities. Um, so what we're looking at is during the year, we're trying to look at, you know, who's our high rotation guys, who, who are the guys that are getting, 20 plus minutes a game uh, that are getting huge loads in games uh, that are playing consistently and then in turn are practicing at a high level as well. Um, who falls below that threshold that's maybe a 10 to 20 minute a game guy and then who's under that 10 minute mark that may get in at the end of the game if we're up uh, a whole bunch or we're blowing a team out that may get some minutes at the end. Uh, so when we look across that spectrum, I feel like from an energy system standpoint, one, we have to understand the structural impact and the structural concerns that we have working with college basketball. Um, these guys are under a pounding consistently. Uh, they're performing repetitive movements through small ranges of motion, uh, which is a recipe for disaster <laughs> uh, for nine months at a time. Um, so we're very cognizant of the fact that we need to make sure that we look at our internal loading data, that we look at our game data and we find out what are the demands of the game, what's being hit in practice, what's being hit in games, and then what do our athletes need from a development uh, and regeneration piece to continue to perform throughout the season. Uh, so for instance, for a high minute guy, um, most of the time, you know, our heart rates are averaging anywhere between, you know, 70 to 85% uh, of their maximal heart rate during a game. That's kind of where they sit. Big guys are going to have some bigger peaks. Uh, their average heart rates are going to be a little bit lower just because they're not getting up and down as much uh, and they're not moving as much. So they are going to have some higher heart rates. Um, but overall, when those big guys come in, they're usually highly anaerobic. Their aerobic base is almost zero. Uh, cardiac output and cardiac efficiency is, is, is horrendous. Uh, and they got resting heart rates in 75 to 80 beats a minute. Um, so with those big guys that come in, uh, we have to look at not only the demands that they're getting in games and in practices, but also look at during the season how we can continue to build up their aerobic base during the year, um, but also how do we take away some of that structural impact. So we use a lot of lower intensity or lower impact cardio um, or cardiovascular work with those guys. And then we're using things like Alter-G, uh, spin bike, um, things of that nature to make sure we balance um, the impacts that they're getting on the floor. And then we're looking at from the guards and from the little guys, uh, you know, they're having higher average or very similar to like a midfielder in soccer. 
Uh, they're having these higher average heart rates. Um, they're spending more time in these moderate zones. Uh, they're making more accelerations and decels, uh, decelerations during the game. So there's a huge structural piece there. But usually they're a little bit more fit. Uh, they're smaller, uh, they're a little bit more explosive, uh, and they really don't have as many issues with some of those that, that cardiovascular fitness. Uh, so for those guys, you know, we're looking at high-end work. We'll do some low volume uh, of intervals, but also, too, um, we're very cognizant of the fact that, you know, we're only going to do what the guys need. Um, and if a guy's getting high minutes, you know, if we need to fill the gaps or he's, you know, he, we're maintaining his fitness. I mean, you're getting such a huge exposure in the game of basketball, uh, except for our big guys. Uh, and some of our freshmen, when they come in, they're extremely weak and, and mechanically inefficient. Uh, fitness has never really been an issue. Uh, for our guys, uh, just the way our practices are ran, the size of our team, uh, the way we prep, we never really had a ton of issues with guys being out of shape as far as guards are concerned. Now, big guys, that's a different story. Uh, we got some guys that are over seven foot tall. They're 260 pounds. Uh, it takes, it it takes some time. Uh, and those guys are getting worked during the year. But for me, back to your previous question before I rant any further, uh, you know, it's really looking at what are the game minutes, what are the practice minutes, and just making sure our guys are hitting their numbers on a daily basis. So if a guy doesn't play a game, he needs to get that load, and he needs to get that cardiovascular uh, and that energy systems development. Uh, so if a guy has that, then on game day, for instance, if we know a guy's not going to play, if he's a walk-on uh, or if he's a low-minute guy, then we'll wait till after the game. If he's a walk-on and we know he's not going to play or he's not going to get very many minutes, uh, then we'll do that work before the game. But our biggest thing is that over time, that our chronic exposure to stress and load guys aren't missing days and there's not these peaks and valleys and how they're being developed and how they're being trained. Uh, so in the season, I think you have to be very, very careful with how much you add, understanding that you can get the work you need to get done, but also it's a balancing act. Uh, the last thing I need is a rash of stress fractures or anything else because we're trying to get work done uh, to make sure a guy's fit and a guy's in shape. But I think a lot of it's very um, we're proactive and monitoring it, but we're also very dynamic and reactive as far as what we're doing based on the rotation. Uh-huh. And would you say that kind of ties into that idea from, you know, Alva Mill and also I've spoken to Eric Helland who worked with him. Same thing with kind of high stretch shortening cycle components. When you're in a jumping based sport, perhaps exactly. the majority of your power work should be more contractile and less impactive. I agree 100%. Uh, and I think that's the one thing you look at. Um, there's a lot of general discussion on power development, speed development, but you really have to look at the demands of the game uh, and see how these athletes you know, are working through their movements on the floor and then what type of stress they're being placed under and then modify your program uh, to either fill in the gap. So in our case, for instance, for you already mentioned speed and power work, you know, we spend the majority of our time field work-wise uh, doing accel- accelerations and speed work, uh, you know, 95, 90% plus, and then doing, you know, you know, some oxidative work as far as tempos are concerned. I mean, it's a very high-low model, very influenced by Charlie Francis, Buddy Morris, and James Smith, uh, but those are the gaps we need to fill. Our guys are constantly in that medium intensity, uh, medium heart rate zone, kind of no man's land, tw- pretty much 24-7. 
uh, so that we find that we have to bring those, fill in those gaps, like I stated before, on the low end uh, with some aerobic restoration and some aerobic development. And then on the high end, uh, obviously, when you look at speed work and even from an energy system standpoint, we have to make sure we maintain those abilities. Um, but we're also looking at, too, and I know you probably experienced this, but the long season, um, if guys lose lean muscle tissue, if guys get weaker, uh, they become less powerful, uh, internal load demand goes up. Uh, and that's just what I've seen. So I've seen some guys that, you know, perhaps have, you know, uh, may or may not have given what they needed to give in the weight room, uh, or we may not have been able to get the sessions that we need to get even on a weekly basis. And that's reflective in some of their heart rate data as far as how they move. Now, we haven't had a whole bunch of issues with that, um, but it's something to be mindful because we don't, we can't do in-season training. Uh, like I said before, we're always we're 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 always in season, <laughs> you know. What I, mean? I mean, I mean, even during the summer, which is our off season period, we're still practicing. Um, so you're balancing and emphasizing certain things over the other. But I can't get to October, November, and just hit the brakes and say, "All right, well, we're done. Uh, we got to we got we got to play games now." And then you know you got to go through you know, November, December, January, February, March, and hopefully you're playing in April if you're doing things right. Um, so you have to be very mindful of, you know, how you program those, you know, structurally taxing movements and understand that the game and, you know, in general is a very explosive, uh, it's like a two hour plyometric session. Uh, so that type of movement really, really helps with strength retention um, and that residual and being exposed to that. And I have a lot of guys that do extremely well during the year. Um, we have to cut back volume. We still utilize a little bit higher intensities and we just cut back the volume and, and, and use exercises throughout the year um, that are less structurally taxing, uh, that don't put as much as wear and tear on the joints once we get to conference season. But overall, our guys are still training three to four times a week um, all the way through out of conference, which it runs all the way through December. And then once we get into conference season, we're going anywhere from two to three times a week. Uh, and then we taper down, uh, volume and intensity that way. Um, so you have to really look at your annual plan and look at your calendar and continue to develop these kids on the front end of the year. Uh, so you can be able to perform when it matters most. Has, has a tool like K box been useful in that regard? Yeah. I mean, looking at the K box, I mean, you run back and you look at these athletes that I'm getting, um, they're over-specialized, uh, they're weak, they're underfed and they're overworked. Um, so when they step on campus, um, strength is a huge issue. Um, you know, strength is a means to an end, but it's also a foundational quality and a platform for which things like speed, power, um, you know, body armor or lean muscle mass uh, and mechanical efficiency is built upon, as, especially when it comes to durability and resilience. Um, so the great thing about working with basketball uh, and the way out and the reason why I love to train it is they're already skilled. Uh, they're already, they're already talented. Um, they're elite athletically and they're elite skill. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're, you know, it doesn't res automatically result into elite physical preparation, but they're fantastic, uh, tools to work with. Um, so for our guys, our, our training is very simple. Uh, it's directed, um, it's consistent and I enjoy it. Um, and I enjoy being able to take guys and truly, train them and then see them make measurable progress. So when we looked at the K-Box, the first time I heard about that uh, was actually from Landon Evans and Carl Val um, were speaking to me about it. I didn't know much about flywheel training at the time. I knew that 
our guys, um, just looking at force plate data and looking with how our guys move, um, there's a huge difference when guys come in as far as their standing vertical jumps are concerned, uh, both squat jump counter movement and non-counter movement squat jump, so to speak, uh, when compared to what their approach or their max vertical is. Um, these guys are highly reactive elastic. Um, they're masters of momentum, uh, but they have no brakes. Um, so they're 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 fun they're phenomenal uh, at producing force, but they're terrible at reducing it. Um, so when we look at those guys, and we got guys that have standing verticals of twenty three inches, uh, but then they have an approach vertical of thirty eight inches. That's a problem. Wow. <laughs> uh, and, and you laugh, but I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, when you look at that type of profile, uh, that's a huge glaring weakness uh, with mechanically of how these guys not only interact with gravity, but with how they express force and how they create it. Um, so looking at the K box, uh, it wasn't a situation where I bought the the flywheel trainer to say like, okay, it's another option for big guys or guys that we don't want to axial load, sort of like a belt squat or a pit shark. Um, it was bought with the sheer intention of being able to maximize our centric rate of force, force development to teach our guys how to transfer brace and then transfer forces. Um, with basketball players, you have a lot of guys that tend to leak out. Uh, and what I mean by that is they generate these high levels of forces through really small joint angles, uh, and they just don't have the strength uh, or stability um, to deal with those forces as far as when they land or when they take off, you know, when they're coming down is where most injuries are going to happen. Um, so we saw this day in, week in, week out with everybody that we were training. So after I started speaking with Landon and Carl and they were telling me some of the, you know, the results they were getting uh, with the K-Box, I actually bought two of them and I actually never used one before, uh, before I bought it. Uh, so it was one of those things like, please work. Um, please, you know, please be what we need. Uh, then once we purchased it and once we got it, I mean, it was a wrap. I mean, I knew from the moment that I stepped on it personally, it was like nothing I've ever done before. Uh, it was like, you just have to kind of feel it, um, and have to experience it to truly appreciate, uh, what it can do. Um, but then early on too, we were still in that honeymoon period. I, I had a lot of observations, you know, personal observations and kind of anecdotal evidence, uh, but I didn't really have any numbers to back it up. Um, so we actually got it in October, right before the in-season period uh, had started. So during the year, um, we were utilizing it one to two times a week um, with basic movements, with the squat, with the RDL, um, with some single leg movements, but just keeping it very simple, um, being very conservative. Um, I heard all this stuff about DOMS and everything else from it. We haven't really experienced that, but I heard a lot about it. Um, so we were very conservative with how we implemented it just because it's a new piece of equipment, uh, changing an exercise or varying an exercise adds, adds intensity automatically as we know, and our guys need to get accustomed to it. So we, we, you know, kept it simple. Um, guys did squats, did single leg work on it, RDLs, things of that nature. Um, and it went really well. Um, a lot of guys that use it, love it, even though it's extremely demanding, they don't see it as a loaded barbell. And my, and my guys love to train now, uh, and I'm very blessed, you know, to have a group of basketball players that love the weight room, uh, and they've really bought into what we do. But when they look at 315 on a bar and they look at the K box, that's the size of a aerobic step box. Believe me, uh, the mind's telling the body what to do, uh, and they automatically see it as a less intensive means 
because they don't necessarily understand uh, the physiology of it. And during when they're doing it, it's very peripherally fatiguing. Uh, but once they get done, they feel great uh, and the guys really like it. Uh, but what we noticed when we started using it, um, there's a lot less complaints of patellofemoral knee pain. Now, this is all observational and anecdotal, but um, as soon as we started using it, we had a lot of guys that were complaining of some general knee pain, which you get in preseason. Um, we started implementing the K-Box. Um, we had a lot of less complaints of just general low back stiffness. Um, we had a lot of less complaints of, you know, like I said before, patellofemoral knee pain. So we saw some of those things through the year. Uh, we were also seeing changes in our force plate scans of guys' load or the ability to, you know, eccentrically apply force into the plate uh, and their eccentric rate of force development was improving in season. Uh, and we started to see these things and I was like, you know, maybe we're on to something. Uh, and then we got to the spring and then we were able to do our postseason, our transition block before we started our offseason training. And we started to do a lot more work on it uh, and really make it a huge focus of what we were doing. Uh, and the same thing happened. Uh, we started seeing, you know, improvements and, you know, how our guys were, you know, you know, our jumps, our standing jumps, our eccentric utilization ratios were better. Um, our counter movement jumps were improving. Our standing verts were improving. I mean, all these things were starting to, now, obviously there's a lot of other pieces at play, you know, cause we're still squatting. We're still doing the Olympic lifts and things of that nature. We're jumping, we're spinning, we're throwing med balls. Um, so is it really just that? Um, but you know, I have to really believe that it played into that. Um, so yeah, so the spring we used, uh, we actually did a Cal Dietz inspired triphasic block on it. Uh, some of our higher level guys, which was most of our guys that came back because we didn't have our freshmen yet. Uh, so we started off with basically, a, uh, you know, I kind of flipped it just because of the nature of the movement. We went through an isometric emphasis block uh, where we would hold the wheel um, and then we'd run through some, you know, isometric type work where they have a pause, they're holding, they're maintaining tension. And then we lead, they would release the wheel and then they're exploding back up, slamming the brakes, sticking it. And we did some of that work for a postural and positional uh, emphasis slash focus uh, in that initial block. And then we this summer, we just finished up. Um, we did a high resistance, high force, low velocity block on it with uh, multiple wheels. Um, and did some of that work early on in our summer training to build up some eccentric strength and to build up um, some yielding strength. And then now we're transitioning into now where we're doing some higher speed work on it uh, through shorter ranges of motion where we're currently adding our blocks of training, uh, focusing on rate of force development. So we're implementing that now. Uh, our freshmen that came in, that's their primary lower body uh, exercise. Um, they do the squat, they do the RDL, and they do the single leg movement weekly because all their main movements are all technical emphasis right now. Um, so it's been a huge piece because not only does it help us develop our freshmen uh, and give them a way to improve their maximal strength uh, with a little bit less of a learning curve while we teach them the other movements, but it also helps our advanced athletes, also gives them a nice tool uh, to use to expose some different traits as well. Um, so it's definitely by far, besides the med ball and the loaded barbell, um, it's by far our most versatile piece of equipment. I think you just sold me on it. I'm going to have to ask if I can have the uh, the budget for a couple. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, just going back to it a little bit too, I mean, you just see it. I mean, you got these guys that are all gas, no brakes. Um, and then you look at them from an in-season perspective. I can do four sets of six to eight repetitions you know, and, and we use the K meter as well. So we're not only, not only are we looking at RPE from an athlete perspective, and usually all you have to do is look at their face, um, but look at their face, but we're also looking at from a VVT standpoint to look at five to 7% drop offs in power. 
Um, and then we can stop sets that way as well. Um, so in season, we're able to maintain uh, rep integrity. We're able to maintain power uh, and get the most out of what we're doing. And we get a lot of bang for our buck at, at a little bit less volume. Um, but the first time I put a guy on it, uh, a freshman, uh, some of our pro guys that are coming back from overseas, I mean, you can just see them improve weekly, and it's across the board, uh, both with what their force plate scans look like, how they sprint, how they jump. And I don't, I don't work for Eccentrics. I don't work for K-Box. Uh, but when something works, uh, I'm going to tell somebody about it. Uh, and it's been a huge help for us because we got guys on it from six foot to seven two. And, uh, and we're able to use it for a lot, of, uh, a lot of different movements. I mean, from squats to RDLs to high pulls. Um, you know, hip hinges, dips, push-ups, rows, upright rows. I mean, we use it for a ton of different stuff. How does that program change from, say, the the first year all the way to the, you know, is it five years with a red shirt? Yeah, I mean, if they redshirt, I mean, that, that's the thing, too. Uh, in my, in our model, uh, we're not looking at weeks. We're looking at years. Um, and so I think with that mindset, um, you know, we're looking at slow cooking these guys, uh, but we also understand if a freshman comes in and he needs to be able to play, we have to balance that as well. Because uh, if a guy doesn't redshirt and he has to play minutes, uh, we can't do him a disservice. We have to make sure we prepare him for that. Um, so when we look at that first year of the program and we kind of look at when the athlete comes in, uh, the first step uh, is to make sure you have a very detailed um, injury history. Um, just overall injury history, medical exam. We go through a cardiac screening. Uh, we do a basic blood panel, just like vitamin D, uh, vitamin D, ferritin levels. They, the athletic training staff does a phenomenal job with that. Uh, primarily, the, most of the guys that I work with are of African American descent, uh, so vitamin D is a huge issue um, with these guys. And majority of the guys that come in uh, test low. Um, so they either need to be supplemented. We need to get them outside. They do play an indoor sport, but most of the time during the summer, uh, we're doing a lot of our field work uh, and our conditioning work outside on a multitude of surfaces. Um, so I think that's huge as well. But when they go through that screening, um, our physical therapist performs a functional movement screen. Um, that's his preferred method of just testing overall basic movement competency. Um, he does a wide balance test. He also looks at ankle dorsiflexion, uh, hip internal rotation, and then performs a lower quarter screen. Uh, we also look at some upper body um, screens as well, just overall just to see how the athlete moves or especially if they have an injury history of a, you know, a chronic instability in a shoulder or anything like that. That's all information that we need to know uh, before we program. So that gives us a baseline of, you know, functionally, you know, are these guys fit for duty? Are they ready to perform? And then we can go from there. Uh, once they get handed off to me and they've been cleared, uh, they don't have sickle cell trade. Uh, they've done their cardiac screen. Uh, they went through their functional movement screen and their medical exam. They get handed off to us. Uh, once they get to us, um, we perform a DEXA uh, body scan on our guys. Uh, to look at body composition to see what their their you know anthropometrics and, and overall what their body build is um, that gives us some great information when we look at nutrition uh, modifications and interventions that we need to make um, because they will make a stop with our nutritionists and, and meet with them as well um, we go through a full battery of you know comprehensive uh, athletic testing um, that measures you know basically for us it's a 10 meter 20 meter uh, sprint um, electronically timed uh, we do a reactive shuttle drill um, 
both the NBA lane agility and a reactive shuttle that they use at the NBA Combine. We do that for a variety of reasons. One, our guys know the test. Two, they saw it on ESPN. Uh, and three, they want to know what their numbers are. Uh, so we use a lot of the NBA Combine tests because it lets us not only compare them to themselves, but also take all the NBA Combine data and it allows us to kind of look at that as well. Um, they go through basic jump profiling. So on the force plate, we do a single leg landing test. Uh, we do a uh, sway balance, single leg sway balance. We do an upper body sway balance. And then we do a six jump vertical jump scan. Um, once they perform those jumps, they'll do a standing jump on electronic jump mat. They'll do an approach vertical jump, which is just basically a running start, uh, just to look at the difference between like starting strength and then look at some more of a reactive elastic type movement. Um, they'll go through that. Uh, they'll hit that test, and then they'll come back around. We'll do anthropometrics. Uh, so we'll look at height, uh, hand width, hand length. Uh, we'll take profile pictures. Um, we'll go through that. They do an intermittent level two recovery test. Uh, we talked about it before, and I know you talked about it. And we were looking at energy systems training. Uh, I'm a big fan of the beep test. Uh, it's easy to implement. Uh, it's consistent. It's reliable. Uh, and then what we do is we get levels off that. Usually what we find, and we use the Nike Spark version, uh, and I guess that, that's important just because you got to know what test you use. But uh, And then what we find is that most guys, if they're under 10, um, they're lacking the aerobic fitness uh, to really be able to practice. Uh, and that's just what we find. We see guys that are under 10 uh, usually have issues with that. So they're placed in a certain club and that lets us know. Uh, I think for me personally, aerobic uh, capacity is a huge part of our risk profile. Uh, and with our testing, we're not only looking at preparedness as far as physically what they can do from a biomotor and bioenergetic standpoint, but we're also putting a risk profile on these guys based off injury history, body composition, uh, beep score tests, because most of the guys you see when they get hurt is when they're tired, when they're fatigued, and they lose mechanical efficiency, and then pop goes the weasel. Um, so I think that the the overall the beep test is a, fun, is a phenomenal tool uh, to do that. So we're looking for our bigs to be over 10. Uh, and we're looking for our guards to be over 15. We also take an estimated VO2 max off that. I don't do lab-based testing. Um, I just want to be consistent with the number that we use. So that's what we take it off of. Uh, and for our bigs, we want most of our bigs off that test, not lab-based, to be over 50, which is usually, I think, around usually around a nine, usually around a 10. Uh, then we want our, our guards to be over 54. Um, and those are the kind of like, you know, what we're looking at based off that test. And then we'll test that uh, in the summer preseason. We'll test it after the summer. Uh, we'll test it preseason. Then we'll test it postseason. Uh, and what we're looking at there is to see, you know, what kind of job, like you already talked about, you know, what type of job did we do uh, maintaining our fitness uh, over the course of the season? How do we do maintaining our speed and our strength and then go from there? Um, so once they're done, with those battery of tests, I don't, I don't do any weight room testing uh, right away because I just don't know what these guys are. Uh, I can't program for somebody I've never seen. I never really understood writing out programs for somebody you never tested <laughs> and never could see. You know, uh, so once we get them in and we perform that, uh, every freshman goes through a usually a two to four week block of just GPP work. 
Um, and what I mean by that, it's a lot of general strength circuits, um, extensive warm-up. I mean, that's a huge evaluation tool for us, not to only see how they move, but see how their relative strength is, um, see what type of technical proficiency do they have. Have they been in the weight room before um, with basketball players? Uh, it's not that they don't care. They just haven't been exposed to a strength conditioning program for an extended period of time. They're too busy playing. You know, I got guys coming in right now that have averaged in over 100 games a year for four years. So they already have college mileage before they get in. Um, so once they get in there, and they get into our program. Once we have all that information, they go through that initial two to four week GPP block. Um, and that's what we're looking at. So it's huge emphasis on movement, technical proficiency, um, how they adapt to stress, how they tolerate stress. Usually when the freshmen get here, they go right into practice because they're not here for that first session of summer. Um, so there's a lot thrown on their plate. They're going to classes. They're dealing with practice. Now they're in the weight room. So we really want to see you know, how they tolerate stress, how resilient are they, uh, how do they look week to week and from day to day, uh, and then kind of go from there. Then once we get done with that block and they not only learn how to perform basic movement, how to train, we've done a thorough assessment. Uh, we've watched them entirely. We train them separately. Um, so we're able to have all hands on deck and really monitor these guys and see how they do. And then from that standpoint, we'll do a reevaluation, see where each guy's at based on all their testing, and then assume a profile from there. Um, but I think it all starts with the with the comprehensive athlete profile. Um, we can't do positional specific programs because I got a point guard that's six foot and I got one that's six five. Uh, one of them's 200, the other one's 170. They play the same position, uh, but physically, structurally, mechanically, uh, they're not the same. Um, so we're very cognizant to understand that, yes, they're both playing the guard position. Yes, they're both playing basketball, um, but their needs should be very athlete-centric and very individual um, with how we look at those things. So then over the course of the years, it just goes down to testing. Uh, you know, what's the guy's injury history look like? What's his availability look like? Um, how is his body composition changing? Uh, is everything trending in the right direction? Uh, is he improving in practice? Is he improving in the games? Uh, and, and then we kind of go from there. Um, but it's a very fluid process. It's a very dynamic process. We know what we want to get done. Uh, but we have to see how the athlete stacks up and how he responds to it. Um, but I think testing is huge in that point. Uh, we can do whatever we want to do. We can have guys come in and do triphasic with guys as soon as they walk through the door. We can do anything. Uh, we can do anything, but it doesn't mean we should. Uh, so I prefer uh, to be diligent, uh, to slow cook these guys, and really try to get them started on the right foot. And then two, get them enjoying and get them embracing the process of the weight room. Um, but usually the first block of training that the guys go through after the GPP, we do a lot of Brian uh, Mann APRE. Um, I do a lot of that with our freshmen just because they don't have numbers. Uh, they don't have anything to work off of. Um, so we need to auto-regulate their training a little bit to see how they adapt from week to week. Uh, and so far, like our freshmen this summer, uh, we've seen you know uh, phenomenal results with those guys uh, in the six to seven weeks that they've been here. Um, so I think it's just got to be patient. You got to be patient. You got to be persistent. Uh, and then really don't waste their time. Uh, don't put them in situations where they can't be successful. Sometimes you have to, but overall we want to make sure that they can line up and stack days together and continue to perform. That's a, a huge level of detail that you've got there in that program. I'm just curious, how many staff do you have on hand to deliver a program like that? 
Um, right now, I currently have uh, Joe Grayson, who's our director of women's basketball. Uh, he also works with us. Um, one of the things that we do a lot of, um, and when I talk to you about those profiles, uh, one of the things that we do to stack guys up, um, you know, like right now with him, then we have two interns that currently work with us. That's usually the average in the summer period. Um, during the year, it's a lot harder for me to get a lot of staff. So it's usually myself and then one other intern. And then uh, Coach Gretchen will help me out when he can. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. Um, there's a lot on the front end. I find that the biggest issue I see is when you don't do it as soon as they step on campus. Um, you got to have that baseline. You got to take the time uh, that first week and the first two weeks to really get this information uh, and go from there. But once we get all the information, uh, we've did the we did the in, the work on the front end. Uh, we kind of put them in a radar chart, uh, and we take all we aggregated all the NBA Combine results um, from the last five years um, that was available. Uh, that's about as far as it goes back that we have that we wanted to look at. We take all that position by position. Uh, then we take all the information that we have for all the athletes that we've currently trained here. We put that information in there as well. And then we stack those guys up uh, with both of those groups to see where they fall. Um, so for instance, if a guy has a, you know, say he scores 16 on the FMS score for us, you know, an average high level player is going to score. We want to see guys over the 15 mark. Um, so if a guy falls below that threshold, you'll see that on the radar. Um, if a guy's vertical jump, uh, three quarter court sprint, um, body composition of those things. So now we're able to really look at where does this athlete, you know, where is he above the standard? Where does he meet the standard and where is he below it? Um, it also shows him and our coaching staff, uh, we're, all, we're also covering ourselves. Uh, we're letting our coaches know what type of athletes that we have, what specific things, things these guys need to work on. Uh, and I think the, the ability to be able to objectively look at and quantify uh, that testing data is huge um, with how we train our guys. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of detail. It's a lot of information. Um, but we've streamlined it a lot. Uh, we measure what matters. We test what matters. And then we, we have to have that information to devise our programs. Um, and that's just something we look at. If I have a guy that jumps 40 inches on the standing vert, but his approach jumps 37 inches, uh, then he has an issue. He needs some more reactive and elastic strength. Uh, it's not going to do me any good to continue to, we want to maximize his strengths and he's going to get better there, but there's a gap in his preparedness and it's our job to find that gap in their preparedness, see where they fall in that risk profile. And that allows us to protect them later on. Uh, and I think that's a big piece too. Uh, you can't, you can't protect what you didn't prepare. And I think there's a lot of emphasis right now on recovery, on readiness. If you're a hundred, if you're a hundred percent crap, who cares if you're at 70% of it? <laughs> Amen. You know, Amen. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? So I think we're, we're getting away from just consistent, like our attendance and Carl's talked about this. Carl Val's talked about this. You know, we haven't had a guy miss a workout in three years. Uh, our attendance is good. Uh, our guys are there. We're consistent with how we train. Um, and that's a testament to them and then the fact that they believe in it. But it's also a testament to our coaching staff because uh, they embrace and value it. Um, so we'll lift before practice. We're not lifting after a three-hour practice. Our coach knows what our intensive days are of the week. He understands our training program. We take him through our training program, and he allows us to modify our schedule um, to fit those needs. So he, he helps us maximize our student-athletes. But, yeah, it's a lot, but that's what we get paid to do, right? Oh, for sure. <laughs> what, what would be um, 
a couple of books that you would recommend to, to coaches to make themselves better? One training and one non-training. I mean, not only books, but I think there has to be a huge emphasis on what we're doing right now. Uh, I've been following you for a long time. I think with social media uh, and the way the internet is today, there's no excuse not to have connections and to build relationships with coaches. Uh, I think guys are obsessed with networking, but there's a difference between networking and building relationships. Um, so, I, so I think for me, the first step is you got to go to the people that are doing the things that you want to do. Uh, if I purchase a K box, then I'm going to call Landon Evans and Carl Val and learn more information about the K box. When I first jumped into Omega Wave, uh, looking at readiness and look, looking at HRV and DC, DC potential and things like that, I called Joel Jameson, Jay DeMeo, Dave Tenney. You know, uh, went and saw Valdness that can speak. You know, I immersed myself into that and went to the people that are experts and have the experience using that technology. Um, just because you purchase something doesn't mean you're an expert. Uh, it takes time. It takes skin in the game. And I think it's important that you use those resources that you have. Um, as far as books are concerned, uh, one of my favorites from an energy systems training perspective, it's not extremely dense, but I think it's practical, is Joel Jameson's uh, Ultimate uh, Ultimate MMA Conditioning, I believe it's called. Um, I first read that when, it, you know, when I was working with soccer at VCU. Uh, and it wasn't really a textbook per se, but what it did was inspire me to go look at different things. So for instance, if I was reading about, you know, aerobic capacity development, you know, if I want to look at different ways to improve that trait, not only what Joel listed in the book, but it motivated me to go research that further. Um, so it's a very practical text um, and it goes forward like that. I think uh, Cal Dietz's triphasic uh, training book is phenomenal, not only because it's just about triphasic, but I think the depth uh, and the scope of which he trains his athletes is, is top notch. Um, I'm also a huge fan of Louis Simmons. Uh, I think that's something that, you know, people look at the fact that he's a power lifter, but the guy's a genius. Uh, and I grew up reading his stuff. I'm also a huge fan of Dan Baker as well. Uh, and what Dan Baker puts out and a lot of what he does from an in season programming and wave perspective is reflective in our programming as well. Um, so I think those guys are, are, are some definitely, and then obviously everything Al Vermeil and Charlie Francis that you can get your hands on. <laughs> <laughs> Where can, can people find you online? Uh, Instagram and Twitter is Ryan Horn 45, R Y A N H O R N 45. Uh, email is Horn, R L H O R N R L at WFU.edu. Um, that's where you can contact me. Uh, I love to talk shop. I'm as honest and transparent as they come, I, I feel. Um, so I'm an open book. So if anybody has any questions or wants to dive into anything further, uh, don't hesitate to contact me. One of the finest beards in the game. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, was, I mean, that's why I had to let you know. I asked you if it was going to be on camera or not. I mean, 9 <laughs> o'clock at 10.30 at night, the humidity starts to get it to it a little bit. So I had to, I had to know whether or not I was going to have to pull some adjustments. <laughs> so I'm glad this is just all audio right now. It took some pressure off it, you know, but, but yeah. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate everything you do, and I, I appreciate you taking time on your day off uh, to continue to contribute uh, to the profession. I hope people understand that your website and your resources and the thing that you put, your things that you put out, uh, are top notch, and uh, people should be appreciative of what you're doing for our field. So I thank you. Thank you, brother. Talk to you soon. Yes, sir.